to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. Gospel of Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 39. Beginning in verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. He said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them, came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we come before you this morning with thankfulness and praise in our hearts, rejoicing for the work of salvation that you've accomplished for us by your death and resurrection. Thank you that the good news preached even in the garden when all had seemed lost, you indeed fulfilled the promises, all of the prophecies and the Old Testament came to this world to crush the head of the serpent. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did this by becoming a man and dwelling amongst us. I pray now as we we perceive and, and ponder and look into the depths of the incarnation. I pray that you give us insight, understanding, and wisdom to comprehend these mysteries of faith. O oh Lord, we ask now, Holy Spirit, to open our eyes, to open our hearts, to open our ears and minds, to perceive and receive from you thy word. Give us divine grace. I pray that as I, your preacher, Pray that I be anointed as well to deliver this word in spirit and in truth. May we be not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word in Christ's name. Amen. One of the biggest mysteries concerning Jesus is what was he like between his birth and his public ministry that began when he was 30 years old. I mean, when you think about it and consider it from 
The moment he was born, we have all the birth narratives. There's great excitement. And apart from this one narrative here about Jesus being lost in the temple at age 12, we know absolutely nothing of what took place in Jesus' life for 30 years. Fast forward to when he's 30 years old. We are told not everything, but we are given a portrait of his three-year public ministry with most of the emphasis being on his death and resurrection. And so clearly the gospel accounts are not meant to be biographies. If they were, we would get all those details. Uh, They are theological um, treatises. They are meant and designed to show us not only the life of Christ, but the theological significance of what was most important in his life and what he came here for. Um, There's been much speculation over the years of what took place during that period of time between his birth and today's event that we're looking at and this event and him coming into his public ministry. Most of that speculation has been derived out of Gnostic gospels and heresies and apocryphal books that were never ordained by the church. And so if you've heard any stories, I heard everything from Jesus uh, being a Buddhist to uh, Jesus creating birds out of mud because he was lonely and had no one to play with. It's all myth and fable. It is fairy tales. Don't believe it. The scripture reveals to us what it wants us to know. And the only thing we could presume is that Jesus grew up like a normal Jewish boy in a Jewish family, took on the trade of his father, who was a carpenter, was referred to as the carpenter's son later in his life, which would indicate that at some point Joseph would have passed away because he's not mentioned in Jesus' adult life. And therefore, being a good son assisted his mother in being the firstborn and caring for his family. He lived in obscurity those years, but he lived as a God-fearing man. And he lived according to the law of Moses. He lived according to the law of God, the very law he himself created. One wonders, though, however, what kind of challenge it must have been to raise Jesus Christ. Mary and Joseph. I mean, from the beginning of the announcement of his birth to um, the birth itself and the angels who revealed themselves to the shepherds in the field, to the Magi who came to visit them later and present gifts that Matthew records for us. One could only imagine, as Mary is quoted many times, treasuring these things in her heart, but not quite understanding who this little boy was. What was he like, Jesus? One wonders what it was like to raise him. One wonders the challenge as a mother and father. How do you how do you raise the Son of God without crossing a boundary? And we'll get to that in a little later on. Um, Luke, however, gives us a glimpse into this one event today. And I'm sure when he was interviewing Mary for this account, She shared many stories that she treasured in her heart. And while there were many stories, the Holy Spirit directed Luke to record this one specific story of when Jesus was lost in the temple. And there is significance to the story. There is a theological reason to it. What does God want us to learn? And I think the significance is found in the two bookends of the story. In verse 40, it tells us the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And if you go all the way down to verse 52, 
It says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And the emphasis here is on the humanity of Christ. We are seeing this mystery unfold of Jesus Christ being the Son of God and being fully human, fully God and fully human, two natures in one person, not blended together, not overcoming the other, but perfectly compatible and perfected with each other. And so understanding how this all operates is very difficult at times, understanding, and there's a lot of heresies and false doctrines that have come from trying to figure out the incarnation and rationalize it, humanly speaking. And um, we have to look at the context with it, and it sets the stage for us um, that Jesus himself was a boy being raised in the town of Nazareth. He did everything according to the law. And um, in, that, in that context of being raised by this poor family in this little town, um, we see it's important that his mother and father were committed to their Jewish faith. They raised Christ according to the Bible, and that tells us a lot about how Jesus develops. He develops and grows just like any other human being. He had to grow from a baby to a toddler, from a toddler to a young child, from a young child. He grew into an older child, and when we see him here, he is 12 years old. And as a 12-year-old boy, how many here, anyone here 12 years old? No 12-year-olds here today? Any 13? Well, my daughter's 13, okay? 13, two 13-year-olds. So we have two 13-year-olds. So Liam and Elizabeth, we could see um, just around their age, this story is taking place. Um, and this is interesting because this is a weird age, right? 12, 13, if you have 12 or 13-year-old kids, the tween age, the teenage, it's a, it's a rough time. And Jesus was a teenager, if you could have believed that. Jesus was a teenager. Jesus was human in every sense that we were, but without sin. And so what do we learn about Jesus' humanity today? Well, we learn two things. He grew in stature and he grew in wisdom. I want to look at those two things. Number one, he grew in stature. Jesus came into this world and grew, like I said, as a human being. He developed, his, his body physically developed, and it actually tells us he grew strong. Now, I know in some of the translations it says he grew strong in the spirit, but that is not actually in the earliest manuscripts, but rather he grew strong and he developed physical strength as a human being. And I think this is important to understand because Jesus would have grown up as a carpenter and working in his father's wood shop, he would have had to carry very heavy pieces of wood. He would have had to use a hammer, which required incredibly strength. He would have had to use tools. They didn't have power tools like we do today, but large, heavy tools used um, to construct things. Uh, Jesus was a physically strong man. This was not the fact that he could carry a Roman cross after he was beaten to his own execution demonstrates the physical strength that Jesus had. He was not a weakling. He was not someone who was physically diminished, but he was a man of, of strength uh, and of, of physical uh, stature. And he grew into this. This did not happen overnight. Um, when you consider this about how he grew, um, and I especially think about his carpentry work, it's amazing that the very wood that he created would be the wood that he would work with and would be the very wood that he was crucified on. The Bible tells us that Jesus, as a human being, also had 
weaknesses and limitations. Jesus would become hungry. Jesus became tired. He felt pain. He would experience emotional distress. It says when Lazarus died, he wept like a tomb. It's one of the most powerful verses in the Bible in John chapter 11. Jesus wept two words. And it tells us that, that in the Lord Jesus Christ was this expression of, of, of human empathy and sympathy towards human suffering, particularly the weight of sin. But more importantly, it tells us the purpose of this. Jesus had to become fully human in order to be our substitute, to bear our sins for us and to be our perfect representative, to be that seed of the woman, the one who would crush the head of the serpent, to be the very one who could uh, live that perfect life in our place. He needed to be fully human or else his work would be unsatisfactory. Hebrews 2.17 tells us this, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. As a priest, he had to be our representative. He had to be like us in every way in order to satisfy the wrath of God. And 1 Peter 2.24 says this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you are healed. It was his physical body that bore our sins. He was our sin bearer and he had to be a real human being. The second thing we understand about his humanity is not only did he have all the limitations of physical humanity um, and he had to grow and develop as a human being, but he also grew in wisdom. Now, this may be the hardest one to grasp. Uh, and why do I say that? It's because when we have a right understanding of who Jesus is, we have to understand that his wisdom, his intellectual knowledge, was also limited by his hum human nature. Um, most of us assume that when Christ was born as an infant in the manger, that he possessed all the knowledge of the Son of God from the instant he was born. So that when Jesus was born, he possessed the knowledge of the infinite. He possessed knowledge of the heavens, and he possessed knowledge of the future, and he possessed knowledge of the past, and he could peer into the hearts of everybody as a tiny little infant. That is incorrect thinking. What we have to understand is that Jesus was limited in his intellectual knowledge, in his humanity. Ironically, Jesus, who is personified as wisdom in Proverbs 8 and told in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that he is our wisdom from God, needed to grow in wisdom. How can Christ, who is the eternal Son of God, grow in wisdom? What can be taught to him that he didn't already know? How could anyone teach Jesus? Didn't he have the mind of God? Well, again... Understanding the incarnation means that he was subject to the same laws of physical and intellectual development as we are. The very laws he created. The major difference is that he was sinless. He wasn't born with a sinful nature that hindered the development of his mind. His mind wasn't defiled by sinful thoughts and sinful patterns of thinking. And so we can actually say that Jesus' mind um, developed at an optimal pace. His mind was more advanced than any other human being who ever lived. 
uh, as the Son of God who was sinless and spotless. There was nothing to interrupt him, his mind from developing at a record pace. And that's what we see in our text. He's able to sit with the theologians and scholars of his day and just have discussions with them in the temple for days on end because his mind is growing at a rapid rate that no other human being can grow at. Philip Ryken says this, Jesus was never lazy, but always tried to learn as much as he could. He exercised good stewardship over his intellectual abilities, achieving the maximum potential of the human mind. And so how do we understand this? Well, we have to understand that that Jesus Christ is fully human and he's fully God. He possesses two natures. He possesses a divine nature and he possesses a human nature. And so in this divine nature, Jesus knows everything. He's omniscient. But in his human nature, he is limited by his human nature and still needs to grow and learn and develop. Well, what do we do with areas in the scripture where we see that Jesus had divine knowledge? What do we do with when, when he says to the lame man, your sins are forgiven and the, and the Pharisees are angry and he responds and why do you perceive or why do you think in your hearts why does this man say he could forgive sin? He was able to read the minds of the Pharisees. Or, or how is it in John chapter 4 when he meets the woman at the well and she says she's not married? He says, you're correct. You, you are not married and the person you're living with now is not your husband. He knew exactly what was going on in her life. How is Jesus able to know these things? How is he um, able to see Nathaniel praying under the fig tree in John chapter 1? And what we have to understand is that when necessary, when the Father willed it, his divine nature would communicate to his human nature divine revelation. And so as it were, Jesus depended completely on his human nature in his, in his development and growth as a human being. And when necessary, God the Father through the Holy Spirit would reveal to him special revelation when it was required. Now, we don't see any expressions of this until his public ministry. We know that Jesus possessed the fullness of the Spirit and his awareness of his divine origin begins in our very chapter today. Now, we have to be careful because we can easily make mistakes and blend the two natures. This was a big debate in the early church, particularly in the Council of Chalcedon in the 5th century AD, where the person of Christ was under attack. Some in the early church had a difficulty understanding how the two natures of Christ uh, existed in one person, how he was fully God and fully man. And there were two major errors. One was the monophysite heresy. And this taught that Jesus only had one nature, and it was basically a blend or a hybrid of his divine and human nature. And in his blend and uh, of his divine and human nature, it was a unique or a different, a new nature. Um, this was rejected by the church. Uh, there was a teacher of the monophysite heresy. His name was Apollinaris. And he specifically rejected the idea that Jesus had a human mind. He argued that if Jesus had a human mind, that he was capable and liable to sin. So therefore, the human spirit and mind had to be replaced with the divine. 
This was rejected by the Alexandrian Synod under Athanasius, one of the great early fathers of the church, and declared a heresy in 381 A.D. Another heresy was the heresy of Nestorianism. This argues that Christ did indeed have two natures, uh, but he had to be two persons rather than one person. And that is utterly confusing and becomes even more problematic. The conclusion of the Chalcedonian Confession simply states that Jesus is truly human, he's truly divine, has two natures perfectly united, but without mixture, without confusion, without separation, without division. Apart, at the end of the day, apart from divine and special revelation, Jesus did not know anything outside of his experience or beyond the capacity of the human mind at the age to know. When Jesus was able to look into the hearts and minds of people, it was because God revealed it to him. One person who struggled with this greatly was Thomas Aquinas, he was a great medieval theologian. Aquinas wrestled with the text where Jesus says in Mark 13, 32 of his second coming, he says, no one knows the day or the hour, not the angels of heaven, not the Son, but only the Father knows the day or the hour. And I'm sure if you've read that passage, you have been perplexed by that yourself. If he's Jesus and he's the Son of God, of course he knows when he's coming back because he's God. In his divine nature, he utterly knows the time and the day. But in his human nature, he does not. Aquinas wrestled with this, and as a result, he believed that the two natures, in their unity, that Jesus had to know, and that it would have been communicated, but he was wrong in his understanding. Unless the Father had revealed it to him at that moment, he would not know. Like the prophets of old, Jesus' knowledge of special revelation depended on the Holy Spirit. We see this often in the Gospel of John where Jesus would use the refrain, I do nothing apart from what the Father tells me to do. I know nothing apart from what the Father reveals to me. Jesus Christ is completely subject to the will of the Father. This is the incarnation. We often take the mystery of the incarnation for granted and don't really think about how condescending it was for the Son of God to become a man. We don't realize how humiliating it was for the Son of God to take on all the limits of humanity. And he did it for you and he did it for me. It's called humility. It's called it's called lowering ourselves in the same way that Christ lowered himself. Having this mind among you, Paul says in Philippians 2. Well, the hypostatic union is a difficult doctrine to understand, but rather we accept it by faith as a divine mystery. Well, let's get to our second point of the sermon. This is the, this is the fulcrum of the story. And that is Jesus lost in the temple. Let's get into the context of this. It says, now his parents went up to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. This says a lot. It was required of every Jewish man that he would attend the three uh, feasts, the three high holy days. That would have been the Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, and it would have been the Day of Atonement. This was required. Every male in Israel must be in Jerusalem 
uh, but poor families uh, who couldn't go would make it uh, at least one of them, and at least the husband would go. But the fact that Mary and Joseph went every year to celebrate Passover, to worship God in Jerusalem, says a lot about the family. It shows that Mary was a woman of faith. She was committed to the, to the worship of God. She was committed to the Lord, and her and her husband raised Jesus in a godly home. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. But what was this custom? At 12 years old, Jesus would have been months away from his 13th birthday. Now, those of us who are of Jewish origin or have Jewish friends know that at 13 years old, a young man becomes a bar mitzvah, son of the law, and, or son of the covenant, depending how you translate it. Um, that's literally what the term bar mitzvah means. It means at 13 years old, you're considered a man. And you become a member of the synagogue, of the covenant community of Israel. It's a coming of age uh, ceremony, much like confirmation is in other denominations. So Jesus, according to this custom, was preparing for his bar mitzvah. And he was preparing by going to Jerusalem in the Passover uh, to be taught and to learn about the Passover story. The Passover story is very significant in its meaning to the Jewish people, is about God's deliverance, uh, delivering his people who were slaves in Egypt and setting them free and destroying the works of Pharaoh. And this is all pointing to Christ himself. And so this would have been in a special time in Jesus' development. Now the feast was over, and they were returning home. It says in verse 43, when it was ended, they were returning home. When the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, his parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, and then they began to search him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple. Now, in the ancient times, when you traveled and made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, which would have been a long journey, and because so many other Jewish people were doing this, you would normally go in caravans, especially as a family. It was a safe way of traveling. Uh, you, you got together with all the other families, you, and you went together in a big group. And, and according to um, ancient custom, uh, the men would stay in the rear, and the women would go in the front. The little ones would go with their mothers in the front, and the older uh, sons would stay in the back with the fathers and the men. And so they were separated, Mary and Joseph, during this time. And, and it, it's not till 24 hours after leaving Jerusalem they realize, where's Jesus? Um, maybe dad assumed, maybe Joseph assumed that Jesus was with Mary. Mary assumed Jesus was with Joseph. And it turns out he was with neither one of them. And they search among all the other people there and their relatives and acquaintances. And, and lo and behold, Jesus is lost. I, I don't know how many parents here have ever had a scare of almost losing your child. I remember when Elizabeth was little, we were down in Ocean City and she got uh, frightened by something and she ran into a crowd of 100 people. We couldn't see her. And for about a brief minute, I thought she was lost and I got really scared. Uh, it's a very frightening experience when you think you're going to lose your baby. Um, you know, even harder is when, uh, in fact, I played a trick one time and it was just cruel. It was horrible. I'm sorry about this one, Dad. But when my father... Uh, an aunt one time were babysitting Rachel when she was really little 
they were in the driveway of my old house and they were talking and discussing and their backs were turned. Rachel was in the carriage and they weren't even looking. And while they were not looking, I grabbed Rachel and ran away with her. And when they turned around and saw the carriage empty, my poor aunt almost had a heart attack. It was a cruel joke. It was terrible. Um, you know, it's scary, the possibility of losing your kid. What about losing someone else's kid? Now, of course, Jesus was Mary's biological son, but spiritually, he, God was his father. Joseph was, was a surrogate father. Could you imagine the fear that must have come over them? It's one thing to lose someone's son, but to lose God's son? I, and this is what, and I want you to grasp how challenging it must have been as two sinful human parents to raise the son of God. I struggle as, uh, as, uh, to raise my own kids. I, I'm constantly beating myself up with all the mistakes I make. I can't imagine how difficult it must have been for Mary and Joseph. And so they go back to Jerusalem and for three days they're looking for him. If I lose my keys or my wallet for an hour, I am in a panic state. Can anyone relate to that? Could you imagine losing Jesus for three days? I don't think they even slept. The panic and hysteria must have been so intense that we can't even imagine. And finally, they find Jesus. And this builds up to the climax of the story. The climax is, is they find Jesus in the temple. And they find him there engaging with the top theologians and scholars in Israel. He's asking them questions. They're teaching him and he's listening. And, and, and look what Luke tells us. They found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listen to them and ask him questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding of his answers. That word amazed is one of Luke's most beloved words. He uses it often in his gospel account. And he uses it often, as we'll see later, how people respond to the works and the teaching of Jesus. It's simply amazing. There's something supernatural. It's, it's something that blows your mind away. And it says everyone who was in the temple was surrounding this little 12-year-old boy and they were simply amazed at the intellectual depth of knowledge that he had. This was no ordinary child. This was a prodigy. It says that even his mother and father, when they saw him, they were astonished too. I mean, just imagine what races through their head. What could have happened to Jesus? Someone could have kidnapped him. He could have got hurt. He could be starving. They're probably thinking the worst case scenario. And there he is, teaching and listening and asking questions with all the Pharisees and all the scholars. What's this? And Mary, you got to give her some slack here. Has any mom here ever been in a panic state? The emotions could run high. 
says, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching you in great distress. This was not, this was not Mary scolding Jesus for doing something wrong. This is a woman who was gripped by fear and panic. Thankful she found Jesus. But at the same time, oh my goodness, where were you? Thankful to find him. This was the ultimate Home Alone movie, right? Remember in Home Alone when mom finally makes it back to the house and finds little Kevin, how relieved she is that he's okay? But at the same time when she walked through the door, she was angry. Probably more angry at herself than anything. It's at this point where we get to the climax where Jesus responds to her. And he, he's not being a wise guy. He's not sinful. But he simply says to her, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? This is the first time, and this is the why. And I believe this is the reason why the story, of all the stories Mary might have had about Jesus, why this was selected to be recorded in the scripture because this was not only a coming of age of Jesus about to celebrate his bar mitzvah, but it was a coming to an awareness of who he was. Where the boy, Jesus, this 12-year-old boy is expressing a full sense and awareness that he indeed is the son of God. No other Jewish person referred to God as their father in an intimate and personal way. God was referred to the father of Israel as a nation corporately. But to say, wouldn't you know I'm in my father's house with a possessive pronoun indicated that Jesus had a unique relationship with God that no other human being ever had. Did you not know I'd be here? Was it simply saying, I have to be here. This is where I belong. It's my father's house, it's my house. Jesus being in the temple, talking about the Bible, meant he was home. And as a Christian, we ought to feel the same way. If the spirit of Christ dwells in us, then we feel most at home. We're in the house of the father, talking God's word. You see, this story is not about Mary and Joseph. This story is about Jesus. It's about him being in his father's house, learning, instructing, growing, and developing, preparing to be the Messiah that God would send to his people. Jesus... Complying completely under the law of God, submits to his mother and father, and he goes back home. It says in verse 50, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Mary and Joseph knew who Jesus was, but they didn't know. It would take time to really grasp and figure that out. It says in verse 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. That's one of the most powerful statements there. It's one of the most powerful statements because if there was ever a child 
who had a right and an excuse to disobey their parents, it was Jesus right then and there. Do you not know I belong in my father's house? This is where I belong. I I have to be here. There's a divine compulsion for me to be here. Go home. But what does Jesus do? He humbly submits to his mother and father. His adopted father. Asterisks. <laughs> what does this say about us? Children, how often do our children exercise their strong wills? How often do we find it difficult to submit to authority? God puts authority in our lives for a reason. There's no authority that exists under heaven unless God gives it. And in every sphere of life, he gives us authority. For children, he gives parents. Husbands as heads of their home. Wives are to submit to their husbands. In churches, pastors and elders Expect the members of the church to be submissive in government. As Christians, we are expected to be submissive to our governing officials and to our authorities. But by nature, we are not submissive because the sinful nature is proud. The sinful nature resists authority. The sinful nature insists on our own way. But you see, Christ didn't come just to die for us. He came to live for us and set an example for us. An example of Christ's submission here is an example for all of us. You cannot say you are a humble person if you are not submissive. If you cannot submit and will not submit to others in your life, to authority, you are not humble. And mark my words, God resists the humble but gives grace I mean, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. A humble person is a teachable person. A humble person submits. And Christ, humiliating himself in the incarnation, demonstrates how humble he is by submitting to these two human beings who he created, who will judge one day, and he yields to them. And this will be the pattern of Jesus' whole life. Up until the point of death, the Garden of Gethsemane, on the eve of his crucifixion, as he's praying in the garden, sweating, as it were, drops of blood, what does he say? Not my will, but thy will be done. He submitted himself to the very end. That is Christ's likeness. You want to follow Jesus Christ. And be submissive. If you're proud and combative and argumentative and difficult to get along with, you're not Christ-like. You're not humble. If Jesus was so willing to submit and yield to others, why do we find it so hard? Let me conclude. The crux of the story is that Jesus was aware of who he was. And Mary treasured these things up in her heart. The boy Jesus grew into a a man eventually. 
As we continue in Luke, we will enter now into his adult life and public ministry. But there are some good lessons we can draw from today. A few concluding thoughts. Number one, just as Jesus grew strong in stature, we can do the same by taking good care of the bodies God has given us. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Taking good care of our physical bodies is not legalistic. It's wisdom. If you go through life just eating junk food and not taking good care of yourself and abusing your body with alcohol or drugs or smoking or any vices like that, and you get sick and you suffer one day, it's your fault. God's given us human bodies and where to take good care of it. We should be good stewards of our bodies. I've often heard the argument, well, bodily exercise profits little, but it profits. Christ redeemed our body and our soul, our whole being. God's going to raise us up one day. It's the basis why we don't fornicate, because the body belongs to Jesus. He redeemed, he paid for our bodies. So we're going to take good care of it. Secondly, Jesus grew in wisdom. God has given us an incredible gift with our minds. And we do not use the full potential of expanding our minds. Our minds, and we learned this yesterday in our men's fellowship, um, are so often distracted with the stupidities of the media intake we take, whether it's TV or internet or uh, social media or video games. We just, our brains are turned into mush. There's actually factual studies that the, our mental capacity is diminishing with all, the, with all the intake we're taking from digital media. Let's be like Jesus and devote ourselves to the study of God's word and commit ourselves to the study and reading of books that are spiritual and developing our minds. As the Bible tells us, we have the mind of Christ. Thirdly, Jesus was in his father's house. In another translation, it could be translated, I'm about my father's business. A more accurate translation would be, I'm in my father's house. Where else would I be? Zeal for Jesus' house consumed him. Even in his adult ministry when he was in the temple, he tore the tables over and he, he overturned when he saw the corruption because he had zeal for his father's house. You see, the temple in Jerusalem represented the presence of God among his people. And the people, they were corrupt and they were dirty and they were filthy. And even though they were corrupt and filthy, dirty, he was still there worshiping the Father. Our attitudes towards church and towards worship, I think, in the, this day of age have become so diminished. We see church as merely a inconvenience that if we have time we'll go to on Sundays I was talking about this last night I remember when I first got saved we would go to church for Sunday school at 9.30 then service at 11 go home sleep and then go to Sunday night service little by little over the years we've seen the Sunday night service go most churches have gotten rid of Sunday school midweek services have gone in most churches we're down to Sunday morning service and people can barely make it to that why? As a brother said last night in study, it's too much work. We're lazy at the end of the day. It's hard work to do these things. And we've become more accustomed to staying home. And I would even say that sermon audio has been a big cause of this. 
20 years ago, if you wanted to hear a good sermon, a Bible-believing sermon, if you wanted to get filled with the Word of God, guess what? You physically had to go to church. And if you heard a sermon you liked, I'm old enough here to remember the days when you would submit an order, an order to the sound guy for a tape, a cassette tape of the sermon. I still have some of those cassette tapes at home, and I don't even have a cassette player no more. I save them just from memory. Now, forget it. You go on YouTube, Sermon Audio, you can listen to every sermon from any preacher at any time. Why go to church? Because going to church isn't just about hearing a sermon. Going to church is about being in our Father's house. It's about going home. It's about, it's about saying, you know what, that's the world, and it's ugly, and this is like a sanctuary once a week. I'm in, I'm in my Father's house. I have to be here. I want to be here. I delight to be here. I don't care what anyone else or anything else is going on. I need to be in my Father's house. And finally, the last lesson we could take from this is Jesus was submissive. To be submissive is a quality that is expressed from a humble disposition. Humble people submit. Christ-like people submit. It's an ugly word, because it calls for us to relinquish ourselves and our rights to the will of another. Know this, though. Spiritual people are submissive people. I was reading an email last night from Jonathan Lehman, who's just publishing a new book. And, and the theme of it is authority sub is submissive. That even those in authority still have to submit to another Everybody has to submit to someone. Submissiveness at the root of it and accountability is the basis of humility and growth and spirituality. Christ demonstrated that for us. He humbled himself, came to this world, lowered himself to the point of being limited in his humanity, both physically, both intellectually, and submitted himself to the point of death on the cross, a scandal of humiliation. But without it, we wouldn't be standing here today, would we? He gave it all up for us. And yet, why do we resist giving up our independence for him? Ultimately, let us be submissive to Christ and his word. Let that guard, let it guide and direct our new year. Let us renew our hearts for Christ for 2024. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you and praise you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for not only the ministry of speaking it, but hearing it. I pray that we would not be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And oh Lord, just, just expand our minds to comprehend the depths of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.